Hello, and welcome to Dungeon Talk, the general advice and discussion podcast from D&D Academy. I am Michael, and this is Dungeon Talk, episode number 41, Law and Order. In this episode, Caleb and I discuss playing the good guy, playing a hero, versus maybe playing just an adventurer. We use a comparison of Luke and Han from the Star Wars to kind of differentiate those two and, and talk a little bit about how the games might feel different or as a DM you might run them differently if you're playing for a group of heroes versus a group of adventurers. We then transition into some topics about specifically playing paladins or other holy warriors. There is some generational knowledge, I think, in the role-playing community where most people think if you play a paladin, that means you have to be a goody-two-shoes fuddy-duddy and you have to impose your moralistic code on them. And I think for a lot of groups, having a paladin in them makes the game run not as well, and some people have less fun. So we talk a little bit about maybe the misconception of that, and then also talk about ways that you could potentially play a paladin successfully. And then lastly, because we were running kind of long on time, we just briefly touched on the idea of playing a game where all the players, or excuse me, all the PCs are heroes, in the sense that they're cops or investigators or detectives and give an example of a game that I played in where that happened and maybe encourage you guys to do something similar. It works out very well for a rotating GM structure. So no new reviews this week, none on iTunes, none on Stitcher, so I have nothing to read there. Uh, if you would like for me to read your review on the podcast, all you got to do is give us one. If you write it, I'll read it. So please, if you feel so inclined, go to iTunes, go to Stitcher Radio, give us a review, help other people find our show by telling them what it is about our show that keeps you coming back and listening. Also, I've been, I know I've talked about the RPG podcast recommend list a lot. It continues to go up. Uh, I got an email just the other day from Pat who went on, I think actually it was a comment on the website. He went on and gave us 10 recommends on the latest 10 episodes. Thank you so very much for that. I think last check we were one away from being tied in sixth place, I believe, and only maybe 20 away from jumping all the way up into fifth. Again, I cannot thank you guys enough for doing that. Uh, I did get a comment or question on the website from Jonathan, and he wanted to know kind of how those numbers are tabulated, because on the left side of the RPG podcast, they have a sort of like what's hot list, and they'll have four or five episodes, and then after the episode title, they'll have a number like 8.5, 9.0, that kind of thing. So from what I understand... Those rankings are based off of how quickly shows are recommended. The idea on their, si- on their side is they want people to be pushing the RPG podcast cast website so that people go there. So they want them, people to actively sort of advertise and get the word out. So the first week that an episode is released, every recommend is worth one point towards the what's hot uh, sort of top active list. The following week, each recommend is worth 0.75 points. Next week, it drops to 0.50. Next week, it drops to 0.25. Then after that, it still counts as an overall recommend in the total, which is what's driving us up the the leaderboard, but it will no longer contribute towards the what's hot listing on the left there. I guess that keeps the show maybe that's been on for seven years and it's accumulated 4,000 likes, but they're getting likes on episodes that are four years old from jumping into the what's hot section. So anyway, so there was a question. There's the answer. The overall recommends continue to tabulate no matter if you give them to us today or two years from now. It will contribute to our overall position on the leaderboard. But if you want to see our shows on the What's Hot section, which is on the front page, then we need to give those recommends as early as possible within the release cycle. For right now, on Mondays, I'm releasing the Campaigns podcast. Right now we're in the middle of a new world. If I have any bonus episodes that I'm sending out, like our Fate game, occasionally we do some play tests. We're about to start releasing a Star Wars game. 
Those will most likely be on Saturdays. And then our Dungeon Talks come out on Thursday. So Monday, Thursday, just about every week, barring some sort of issue, which has been known to happen, you're going to have a new episode, and then on occasionally you'll have something on Saturday. I uh, send out Twitters or tweets uh, anytime I have a new episode. It's always on the Facebook page. So if you are someone who wants to get the shows pretty much as early as possible, subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher Radio, and they'll automatically go into your queue. Or like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and then that way you'll get the announcements as soon as uh, they come out. So yet again, enough rambling for me. Sorry about that. Here is Dungeon Talk episode number 41, Law and Order. Caleb, thank you for joining me today. Uh, we have quite a lot on our plate. We, uh, as we have been wanting to do here recently, when we have a new show about to come out, we throw out, "Hey, this is what we want to talk about," and we got probably more responses on this than, than many of the other topics that we've talked about. And more importantly, we got a more impassioned response. So I think this is a, this is a topic that a lot of people are going to be uh, interested in. I hope we can do it justice. Bit of a caveat: I am not even pretending that we will solve any problems as much as we're going to talk about some common issues. Yep. So the three things that we want to talk about today, and, and each one is probably going to go off in some varying directions, but we want to talk about law and order, playing the good guy, playing the hero of a game rather than maybe an adventurer. So the way that we're going to frame this conversation today is we're going to approach it from three main avenues. The first is playing good guys. And this is not necessarily any sort of alignment. This is not any sort of character class. This is just the idea of the hero versus the idea of an adventurer. And I've played and DM'd in both types of those games, and they can be very different in feel. And then we're going to transition over into what most people commenting thought about when we talked about this, which was specifically paladins, lawful good playing by a code of ethics, whether it be required by your class or just a personal code of ethics that your character wants to follow, and the problems that that can arise in a game where by making, by, by me forcing you to play by my code of ethics in my character's eyes. And then the last thing that we're going to talk about is playing in a game where all the characters are cops or detectives or investigators, or specifically in the Eberron setting, the House Deneth. They are essentially U.S. Marshals in the Eberron world. They have a jurisdictional power throughout all the uh, kingdoms or realms or, or whatever, so they can follow criminals across borders. And uh, types of games that you can do in that, what, what are some advantages, what are some possible pitfalls. So circling back, to our first co first concept is playing the hero. So I've already been talking a lot, Caleb, so I'm going to throw it on you. So frame up what it means to play a hero versus play an adventurer. Okay, so with what we've been talking about here, we're discussing 
doing the right thing versus doing whatever is best for you in the given moment. And I think that's probably the most streamlined and simple way we can put that. Uh, a hero is going to be someone who is respected, looked up to in the community. They're a role model. They are going to be tasked with doing big, important things. And I would say that as a GM, giving a hero a mission, you're going to give them a pretty straightforward mission. Save the town, rescue the princess, find the kid that was kidnapped, rescue uh, rescue a prisoner who was unfairly thrown in prison, things like that. I'm not going to say it's necessarily a world of black and white. There's always some gray area in there, but a hero has a very clear mindset of doing the big ultimate right goal at the end of the day. On the flip side of that, playing an adventurer, someone who does what is best for himself or herself in the given moment. You still might be accomplishing a good or heroic task. I mean, you still might be rescuing a princess or saving a town from an invading army, but your motives are different. Why you're doing it. Maybe you're doing it just to get paid. You're doing it to get out of a debt. You're doing it because you're bored and you felt like it. That's going to be a driving factor. And then the end result and the consequences are going to be a driving factor, your reaction to those consequences. A hero is probably going to be upset if things don't work out the right way. Um, and they are probably going to uh, be less after a reward or a payment. They are doing heroic things for the sake of heroism. An adventurer is doing it to get paid, probably doing it for the loot, doing it for the treasure, doing it for the hell of it. So if they do something that ends up being good, they're going to want to get rewarded. They're going to want a paycheck. And if they don't get that, well, how does that go back into doing what is best for them in the given moment? If you are just kind of adventuring for the hell of it, and you did something good and you don't get paid, you're probably going to want to do something to acquire payment whatever those actions may boil down to. Uh, in the same way, consequences. An adventurer can just pick up and leave. An adventurer probably doesn't care about the consequences of a given action. If an adventurer is fighting a dragon, and the best way to kill the dragon is to destroy a dam and flood the cave, sure, go for it. But the hero might say, well, if I do that, it's going to hurt some, some villagers or farmers or destroy some crops. So maybe that's not the best choice of action. Um, I think we were, um, beforehand, we were kind of talking about how we were going to talk about this conversation, and we did some emails, and the the dichotomy of Luke and Han came up mm -hmm. as, as sort of some role models that Luke, being sort of naive, was more of a hero. He wanted right. to do the right thing for the right reason, and Han was an adventurer. And, and to your point, the reason I want to jump in there, you talked about the reward. Han, in my mind, is chaotic good um, yeah. he wants you know he overall will do the right thing most of the time he has a good heart but he is also somewhat selfish and so in the first first game first game in the first movie he got embroiled because it was beneficial to him and there was a reward in it for rescuing Leia 
Now, after he rescued Leia, obviously there were some sparks there, and uh, he liked the idea of maybe sticking around, but at the beginning of Empire Strikes Back, he was getting ready to leave to go pay off Jabba because that was in his best interest. If he had been fully invested in what the Rebellion was doing, he would have said, keep your money. You need it for supplies. You need it for other things, and I'll deal with Jabba on my own. But he wasn't. He was going to take his reward and go pay off his debt. So he was still along the chaotic axes, in my mind, rather than the good at that moment. And, of course, I'm assuming I don't need to say spoiler alert here, even though it might be funny. You've probably all seen Star Wars. If not, something's wrong with you. Uh, but I think that's a great example of those two differences where they were both in the same movie, and you know I think that's one of the things that people, and we're kind of jumping around a little bit, but some of the things people are concerned about in a, in a game is could you have a good, naive hero in the same party with a somewhat world-weary, selfish adventurer in the same party, and it work? Based off of those movies, I'm going to say maybe, because if you notice, those storylines diverged, and a lot of times, even though they're in the same movie, they weren't in the same places. Right. But it's important to note, going off that same example, that the when you have these two diametrically opposed types of characters, they're, they are going to impact each other, and they're going to change each other how they how they view things, how they act, how they think about things. Because I I would I say I think that's a positive. I mean, I think that shows growth oh, of the characters. Absolutely. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It definitely rec- um, it reflects good character development, good storytelling. Um, from a non gameplay point of view, that's what you want to see in a movie or a TV show or a book. If they if they work together and they still remain the naive hero and the weary adventurer with no interaction um, or evolution between them, that's boring. Uh, from a gameplay point of view, that's up to the player. Um, I think if you were going through a little bit more of an organic, organic uh, role-playing type of game, you're going to see some changes in your character over time and reacting to how the other players at the table are playing out their alignment and their worldview uh, is very important. Yes, I want to see the characters grow over time. I want to see them change. And if you're playing in a story-heavy a story heavy or story-focused game, then you should see that. And the DM should try to create scenarios maybe early on that are more black and white, that are more direct. Here is a problem. Heroes fix problems. And then maybe as their worldview is expanded and they move into a larger city or a larger area, maybe an area that has suffered a tragedy or been through a war, and then things will start to get more and more gray because, okay, yes, I can help you, but that's actually going to kind of hurt someone else. There's really no way to solve this problem. It's too big for one person or one group to solve. And then the, you maybe you change your focus from killing the monster of the week to well, we need to now overthrow this uh, dystopian government because they're the ones that are actually causing these problems, and that's going to, you know, sort of transitioning from heroic level, to use D&D's terms, up to Paragon or up to Epic, because you are now, rather than killing individual things or solving individual problems, you're trying to solve these bigger problems. So one of the things I wanted to mention is, again, I've, I've DM'd both types of games, and I think that it's somewhat indicative of our society. We're, we're a bit jaded, particularly in nerd culture, 
if you just look at our comic book movies, you know, The Dark Knight is a great example that we seem to want our heroes to be a little sullied. We want there to be some darkness in them. For the most part, I think when people sit down at the game, you're probably going to find the majority of your group wants to play the morally ambiguous hero, good overall, but dark, than a bunch of players that you're going to find that all want to play the Luke, that want to be the naive farm boy hero that, you know, never really wrestles with moral decisions because they always do the right thing. Yeah, I'll agree with that for the most part. I think it's a little bit easier to play that adventurer style of game. A lot of people that we have talked to and talked about in the past on the show here uh, want to see that open-world sandbox style of D&D game. And I think being an adventurer with a more flexible worldview fits into that style of gameplay much, much easier. Uh, if you want to be that heroic, going-towards-the-end-goal-to-do-the-right-thing type of character, you're almost kind of railroading the game from plot point to plot point. So it's and, and plus it's a little bit it's a little bit of a cheaper game experience because there's less opportunity for character development in one sense. Oh, I should correct myself. You're always doing the right thing, you always have that underlying motive. It requires more of an effort as a player to role play the character growth of that heroic type of person. So on one hand, being the hero is kind of a lazier game because you can just say, well, I'm going to do the right thing. I have two options. Option A, good. Option B, evil. I'm always going to go A. Let's go. So as a DM then, how do you... Like, what are the different mindsets or even different techniques maybe that you would need to use as a DM to present those games and not have them just follow the stereotypical good guy and adventure and make them interesting, make them fun, and maybe even mess with your players a little bit? Oh, man, that is a tough question. <laughs> well, I think a lot of times we have to rely on some of those big fantasy tropes that kind of push that scenario onto a player. Like, if, if they have to rescue somebody who's being held by a dragon you reveal that the dragon is actually, you know, protecting the village in some way. Or you go into, you reveal a little bit about the motives and the reasoning of the quote-unquote bad guy. You know, if you reveal a fact along the way that the villain actually has plausible reasons and motives for doing his, what would otherwise be considered evil action you should be able to get your players to respond to that a little bit. I mean, in one sense, if you are that heroic kind of tunnel vision character, evil is evil is evil. And I think that you kind of hit it on the head there, that as a DM, you're presenting the world. You present everything that is not a player. So your definition of evil is what there is in the world. And if evil in your world is snidely whiplash, if you're younger than 38, you have no idea what the fuck I'm talking about. And, you know, Natasha, so you're just sitting around twisting your mustache and tying girls to train tracks and throwing bombs into orphan orphanages for no reason, then it's going to be very easy for your characters to play good guys. You know, they can be deadly do-right because there will always be a, a nefarious plot around the next corner that has no basis in reality. The other example I would use is Captain Planet. 
that every bad guy in Captain Planet wants to destroy the world, not for profit, not because regulation is wrong, but because they just want to do that because their characters are stupid. If you present a more complex view of, of good and evil and morality, then it will probably be more difficult, more challenging, and ultimately, I would think, more rewarding to play the good guy character because you're going to have to make some decisions that, again, if there is no good answer, then you have to go with the best answer. And someone who's good at role-playing or who enjoys it will probably have their character suffer a little bit for those decisions, maybe go through a little bout of depression, maybe even alcoholism, which can be funny if done the right way. It can get kind of too much. Most, most people don't play that very well. The other thing that you can do, which I mentioned before, I like to be that a-hole DM where I set up a situation where the characters think they do the right thing and it turns out it's the wrong thing. If you're playing with a group of adventurers, they don't care. They, they don't care if they end up killing the bad guy who turns out they were actually the good guy because they're adventurers. As long as they got paid for it or they got some cool loot, they'll just move on to the next town or they'll go, okay, well, now we got to fight somebody else. Big deal. If you're playing a bunch of heroes then killing the wrong person should be a very big moment in their character's life and, a, and maybe even a turning point for their character. Uh, an example, me and a, a friend of mine named Rich, he, he's one of the people that started supporting the site very early on, and, and his uh, Hex adventure is still one of our few non-D&D adventures on the site. He and I were writing in a module together a long, long time ago. We never actually finished it, but it had some elements like that where the PCs had been hired to sort of um, explore, I think if I remember correctly, because this has been like 10, 15 years, they were hired to explore a cave to see if they could find a route through to another city, basically trying to set up a trade route that would be much shorter than the current one. Along the way, they find a small orc boy who is fighting some sort of, uh, almost like a sea monster dinosaur type thing in this cavern that's got water in it. And the idea was that if the PCs intervened and killed the monster, turns out that monster was the only thing keeping the orcs from invading. That they revered it as some sort of god, and they also used it as a, a test of manhood that orcs had to go in, and they didn't have to kill it, of course, but they had to survive for so long, and then it came back out as a rite of passage, and they were adults. So if the PCs killed the monster, now the orcs are going to invade the town, or if they interfered, then that orc would have suffered shame and now you, you could have a situation where they are trying to help that orc regain their manhood, which they have stolen from him. So depending on how black and white and how gray you wanted the morality, but in both cases, if the PCs just walk in and start killing everything that isn't human, oid, then they're not actually playing good guys. And I think that's sort of the different mentality that you need to go in when you're writing adventures and, and creating problems that can be interesting for your players. Right, I agree. When you're putting those situations in a game, don't do it too often, and don't be cheap about it. I mean, the the third act plot twist, the M. Night Shyamalan of gaming, is frustrating and boring and upsetting, if not handled properly. A situation like you just described, where you have to gain the facts and deal with the consequences, is perfect situation where you accidentally kill the wrong person or realize after the fact that they had ulterior motives has to be handled properly. And I think even for the adventurer style of game, you can still make that impactful. I mean, what if you have some personal connections 
between the characters and the city they're in, or this person that they had to hunt, or the person's assistant, or vizier, or bodyguard, or priest. You know, if you build and play those more dynamic relationships, even if they are more chaotic adventurers, you can still make a twist like that mean something. And just off the top of my head, uh, you, you kill the bad guy, but then you find out that he was actually, uh, you know, feeding the poor and protecting uh, the lower class of society. Well, maybe one of your players came from that lower class and they have family in that lower poor society, and now these people are flat out destitute. Just a stupid little example that's not really fleshed out very well, but you can still have those type of choices mean something. Um, what yeah, you say? And I agree with you. That you, I think, I think we even mentioned this on a previous dungeon talk where you, you don't want to do that twist too often. It kind of loses its effect if you do. But if you're playing a good aligned party, a bunch of heroes, that I think it's more effective. And you probably only need to do it once or twice. Otherwise, you're going to jade your players into becoming adventurers because every time they try to do the right thing, something happens. And and that was actually a comment that one of my players said back in college is that uh, pretty much every time they left an NPC somewhere, they were going to be dead by the time they came back. Or any time they left the village, it was going to be destroyed by the time they came back. So they stopped going back places. <laughs> and they stopped caring about NPCs because I always killed them. So I was using... I was doing too much of it. I was just trying to always raise the tension and drama and, you know, what's more dramatic than coming back to a village and it's destroyed. Uh, there's the mystery. Who did it? Why did they do it? Where are they at now? Do we seek revenge? Uh, you know, but again, at, the, at some point, it's kind of lazy storytelling. Uh, I think it's an easy trap to fall into. And I, I definitely agree that you have, to, you know, everything in moderation, which I think we actually said that exact quote last time too. But yes, we want to make sure that you, you know, use all the tools in your toolbox but if all you have in your toolbox is a hammer, then every problem looks like a nail. So you need to make sure that you are doing different things. And then this can be books that you've read that uh, you know you like, you're stealing from movies, podcasts, uh, actual plays, or just a discussion podcast like this. One of the things that I did at Gen Con last year, one of my kind of biggest goals was to play as many games as I could. I, I basically loaded up on RPGs because I wanted to play under a bunch of different DMs. I've been playing for a very long time, but I've almost always been the DM. I've only played under a handful of other DMs, and most of that's been pretty short sessions or you know short times. And I I learned a lot about things that I do well and things that I don't do well, and it was very valuable to me. So absolutely, I I, I don't know that you can be a great DM. I'm sure there are examples if you have not at least somewhat played on the other side of, of the the screen. And I think that it gives you a different perspective. So it's you know. I think in some ways it probably makes more sense for someone who's a player who moves to a DM, but if you've been DMing for a while, take a break, jump the other side of the screen, let someone else run, and you'll kind of see the things that maybe you think are great as a DM, but the players don't particularly care for, especially if they're not you're not comfortable enough that they won't give you that feedback. So that, that was our first big tangent of the night. Won't be the last. Um, <laughs> so kind of if we can probably wrap this this up. So is there any other ideas, techniques, or concessions that you want to make? Well, I guess let me start this over. Is how do you decide as the DM? Do you just say this is a story I'm going to write? I need you to create four adventurers, or this is a story I want to play. I need you to write four heroes, or do you have that first session where you say, Hey guys, what kind of characters do you want to play? And then based on that conversation, you kind of go, okay, well, it sounds like you guys all want to play a hero's journey, 
So let's all make sure that we're playing heroes. Or now nah, you guys are adventurers. Let's do that. Or do you just let people come to the table with what they have and figure it out? Oof. Well, first off, it can work any way that you just said. I mean, there is no right answer here, which unfortunately is going to be the foundational thought behind this entire conversation. There's no right answer. I think having your players bring characters to the table with their own backstory and motives and letting the style of play evolve is great. I think asking them to create heroic characters or adventurer characters is great. I think sitting at the table during a character development session and figuring out how people want to do cooperatively is also great. I mean, if we can bounce back to Fate for a second, Fate Core says your first session should be defining the world and the game and the relationship between characters and NPCs. And in that session, as you're discussing characters and evolving and cooperatively defining everything, you, you can very easily feel out, are these guys wanting to play adventurers? Do I want to play heroes? Do I want to lead them down one way? Do I want to let them take control? Do I want to react to their style? Do I want to try to lead their style? There's just a dozen different ways to do it, and it's whatever works best, whatever feels right at that table right there. But I will say this. In a game, like you just said a minute ago, where things just keep going wrong, where you're basically pushing your characters to either stick to their alignment and motives or encouraging them to adapt and change... That's a pretty dynamic game, and that's a lot of great character development and role-playing opportunity right there. So if you do it right and you have the right players that want to react to that without getting upset and able to roll with those punches, that's an amazing game to play out right there. If done well. <laughs> if done is the qualifying so and I know I've said this before, so I'll, I'll touch on it quickly, but I, I used to not be a fan of the first session character creation. I always felt like it was a wasted session, you know, and married, kids, job. It's hard to find time to role play, and I just felt like I don't want to spend one of my precious evenings playing, not playing. But I have completely changed my opinion on this based off of some of the recent games I've played. And I have seen that, for me, so I either write the character backgrounds for my players, and I have players who enjoy that. I know there are some that probably would be like, you know, get your hands off my character. But for my particular group, they seem to enjoy when I present them a character as just, just like a director. Here's the character you're going to play. And there's still some conversation if they want to change some details, add a, uh, an affectation or a twist, or, you know, because I usually don't have classes. I, I just have personalities and backgrounds and backstory. But I have groups that like that. If I don't do that, then I absolutely want to do a first session character creation so that everybody knows what everyone else is playing and that you can talk through that and you have some sort of unification on why you are together because I have just found that my games tend to go so much better when I do that than when, when I wouldn't before. Now, one thing I'm not a fan of is I don't think you should play your class based off of what other people are playing. I know particularly in 4th edition, there's a, a concept of balance. You know, you need a striker, you need a leader, you need a healer. But I don't want someone to go, you know, I really want to play a fighter, but Bob's already playing a fighter, so I guess I won't. Now, fuck that. Play a fighter. You want to play with two fighters? Do it. Make it work. The DM will have to probably make some adjustments, but 
I don't want you to not play what you want to play just because someone else called dibs on it first or, or has an idea that they are also very beholden to. You know, I said before, I would love to play a game that's four fighters, four wizards, four clerics. I will find a way as a DM to make it work, or I will kill you all in a TPK early because I screw up. But either way, play what you want to play. Don't worry about what other people are playing. As far as classes, backgrounds, personalities, those things I think you do need to make more of a cohesive decision. Otherwise, the party's just going to fall apart and it's going to cause problems. I mean, yeah, and I think through the playtesting for next that has been given a little more emphasis. I mean, in one version or another, there has been a focus on background, the reason you're a hero, or the flavor of the hero that you're bringing. I mean, I don't remember everything. You know a little bit more about this than I do, but at some point, you could flavor even your fighter to be more of from a, pe a priest background, or an arcane background, or a noble background. So you're still that fighter class, but your your background is going to add a little bit of a, a taste to the actual gameplay itself. And that's very, very important. Yeah, if everyone wants to be a fighter, fine. But the question is why? Are you doing it just because you want to have four fighters killing everything? Are you doing it because each of you has a legitimately solid backstory and motive as to why you're a fighter and why you're bringing that to the table for the given adventure. I think the motive is much more important than the method of your class. To be fair, there are some, I'm sure there are some groups out there that, that enjoy the tactical style game more so than, than, than I do, that it, it could be an interesting challenge. I think I've brought the same example up before, that I'm a huge fan of the original Final Fantasy game on NES. I still play it today on my iPad and my emulator. And I often will screw around and do that. I'll, I'll play four fighters just to see how fast I can get through the game compared to four black mages or the red mage, two black mages, and white mage. You know, So it's, it's interesting to go through the same exact game with these different group dynamics to see which one's easier at which points, which one is faster, which one's slower. So if you're playing a very tactical-style game, then it is okay just to try the tactics version and say, okay, could four fighters win this, this scenario faster than four wizards? And and I could probably as much as I you know again I've I've soured on fourth edition a little bit I could actually have a lot of fun with that to go into like a, a longer game where they say okay we're gonna play the same exact scenario three times we're gonna use three different classes for each person I would have a lot of fun with that trying to figure out the best way to go through a, an encounter based off of four fighters or two fighters and a wizard and or three clerics and a fighter. That could be a fun game. I wouldn't want to do a long campaign of that. I would I would definitely get bored. But for a short-term game, that would actually be a lot of fun for me. Right, right. And I think that reflects one of the aspects of 4th edition specifically where it's a little bit more like a tactical board game than a long-running role-playing. Of course, you can run it either way, depending on your style of running a game and playing a game. But it certainly lends itself to that specific example a lot better than, say, Next or, or 3, 5, or whatnot. Well, I guess to wrap that up, I, I think you could play a hero game, you can play an adventure game, probably depends on your group. And I think you could even do a mixture, but I think the mixture would work best if you have one that's different. So in a typical party of four players, if you have four goody-goody heroes and one adventurer, then you could probably find some interesting ways for that to work out. Going back to our fate game with me playing 
the more of the adventurer I've been, I kind of at some point did the right thing because I felt some loyalty to you, and it was a big moment when I did that. And if you're playing four adventurers and you have the one hero who maybe slowly gets corrupted and eventually does the thing that's not really in his character's concept, but it's the right thing at the right moment, it's going to be a big deal at the table when that happens. And I think that could lead to some fun games and some interesting role play. I don't know that if you have a party of six people and three are heroes and three are adventurers that it's going to go very well unless you pull the Star Wars movies and just split them off and go, okay, you three are going to be doing this job for a while and you three are going to be doing this job for a while and go back and forth. So moving on, the, the part that we got the most comments on and the most, again, passion was the sort of the holy paladin, the true goody-goody two-shoes. And I, I have played in those games. I have played paladins, and I think that there is some hereditary knowledge that people have, some stereotypical knowledge that they have of what it means to be a paladin. And I think there's, there's some uh, sour taste in a lot of people's mouths about playing in a party with a paladin and how it hurt other people's fun. Now, this could go for any game that has that sort of divine warrior in there, but we're talking specifically about D&D here. And so what I did is I pulled out my basic books, my first edition and my second edition books, and I read through the paladin. The first thing that I noticed, and I had forgotten this, is that originally the paladin was a subclass of the fighter, which kind of makes me mad because I think that's what Next should have done. I've said that before. But they didn't, and I think they screwed up, because I think that works out better. But anyway, so if you read the Paladin in both 1st and 2nd edition, it essentially says that they have to be lawful good, and if they ever knowingly do something that's chaotic, they have to seek atonement. If they ever knowingly do something that's evil, they lose their Paladinhood forever. So then if you go and read the Alignment, and I'm not going to read all of them, but I'll read the lawful good, because that's the one that's most pertinent. So this is from... My first edition, I think this is a, it's a second printing, but it's the first edition Advanced Dungeons & Dragons book. And it reads that Lawful Good says, while as strict in their persecution of law, so let me start over because it's not persecution. While as strict in their prosecution of law and order, characters of Lawful Good alignment follow these precepts to improve the common weal. And that's W-E-A-L, no, not W-H-E-E-L. Certain freedoms must, of course, be sacrificed in order to bring order, but truth is of highest value and life and beauty of great importance. The benefits of this society are to be brought to all. So if you're playing a paladin, you have to be lawful good and you have to follow that ideal alignment. I know in some alternate books and some, I think even in Next, they, they have codified that into a code of ethics or code of honor or morality I think Next calls it an oath, and that way you can have different oaths to either different gods or different alignments, that kind of thing. But you know, this is sort of what people think about, at least in my experience. When you say, I'm playing a paladin, they go to, oh, crap, you're that guy that's going to make my game not fun. So let's talk about what it means to play lawful good and maybe some of the ideas that we feel people are confused about or some advice on how you can play lawful good and not ruin it for other people. It's definitely a messy subject. Like you said, we bring so much to the table of our experience and our perception and our flavor of the world. So at some point in the past, uh, we have all shared the experience of someone playing a paladin like that, and whether it was the player or whether it was just the fallout of the game, 
it might have made the game complicated or not quite as fun. We've all had that experience. And I think that's really odd that pretty much every D&D player can claim to share that experience. It's just a weird way that we all connect. I, you know, I, I've heard people say when you're playing a paladin, you're playing lawful stupid instead of lawful good. That's a very common description. I've um, heard that as well, yes. Yep. You know, to go back to the books a little bit, you read from the old school D&D. If we jump forward to 3.5, which is where I draw most of my experience and foundation upon, it says lawful good is a crusader. It's a character who acts as a good person is expected or required to act, that she combines a commitment to oppose evil with the discipline to fight relentlessly, tell the truth, keep her word, help those in need, and speak out against injustice. Uh, she hates to see the guilty go unpunished. A paladin is someone who fights evil without mercy and protects the innocent without hesitation. So, to me, a paladin is two things. A paladin is the, the melee weapon of a divine entity. You know, the cleric is the healer, the leader, the paladin is the fist. You know, when a god wants evil thwarted, the god says, hey paladin, go kill something. And in fact, in 3.5, it specifically says, you, you must be chosen to be a paladin. You can't just randomly say, I feel like being a paladin today. You have to be selected, it has to be destiny. Um, but a paladin is also that very stereotypical throw myself into danger hero. It is the, oh, there is a child being beaten in the streets, I have to go stop that. Oh, there is someone going to be eaten by a dragon. I have to go stop that. Oh, there is a slave being kidnapped. I, I have to go stop that. And in fact, way, way, way back when, when I first started playing, um, we were, one of my friends was playing a paladin, and there was a situation where someone, a child, was being taken away from its house to be sold into slavery, and the paladin said, fuck that, I'm going to step in had nothing to do with the game, and all of a sudden we had this little kid with us because the paladin saved her, and it was now her duty to protect this child because she swore an oath to her god, and immediately after doing that, the player regretted it because now she had to deal with those consequences. I don't think there's anything wrong with playing that character if you're committed to it and if you're willing to deal with the consequences. So I think that there's there's a fine balance, and that that's really with every character. And I know, again, I feel like we're retreading some water here, and I apologize for anyone who's, who's listening who feels the same, but there's always going to be concessions that you have to make to make sure that everyone at the game is having fun. So if you're playing a rogue who's really good at sneaking, so maybe you think the problem should be, well, I'll sneak in and kill somebody, or I'll sneak in and steal something, but that may not be the best solution for the entire party. And that's that's a pretty poor example I just came up with off the top of my head. But the, the point being that whether you're a divine holy warrior or if you're just a, an ex-mercenary or you're an orcish barbarian, each of us have things that we want to do 
that our character is good at that makes us feel important, that gives us our moment and makes us shine. As the paladin, you can't always be doing that. If you are, then you probably should be playing in a solo game. And I think I think that's where I started off when I was my idea when I started this is that I've said before that most people make characters as if they are the main character in a novel, and that doesn't work when you're playing a D and D game or a role playing game. You need to make an ensemble character. They can still be very interesting. They have a lot of depth and be a lot of fun to play. But if you are a brooding loner like Wolverine, then you can't have a party of brooding loners. That That is a party destined to fail. If you are the holy shining warrior paladin that has no room for compromise, then you're probably not going to be a good fit in most parties unless you are playing, again, maybe a heroic game where the other characters are all goody-two-shoe heroes. You are the only actual paladin within them. And I think you brought up a good point, a good distinction, is that the paladin is a holy warrior. There is a divine connection between their ideals and their powers and then this this fictional god, obviously, this mythos or pathos of, of deities. So everything to a paladin is a divine order. You could play a good, lawful good character who's just a fighter. You know, it doesn't have to have any divine connection. And I think we talked earlier, for me, a good example of that would be Ned Stark from the Game of Thrones. I mean, it, it's somewhat of a comparison that he was a good guy, and more to the description of lawful good that you read from 3 and 3-5, where you know, they won't see children hurt. So even though he knew that Joffrey was a bastard, again, spoiler alert, um, he could have just killed the kid in his sleep, like, uh, you know, like had done when, like Robert Baratheon had done when they stormed the, the castle, and uh, you know, when they killed the, the, the mad, uh, what's his, Valerius the mad king, whatever. Um, he could have just had Cersei killed once he knew that, that what was going on, but he didn't because that's not what a good guy does. And it was sort of a naive feel, belief that he was in the right, the right would win, so he went about doing somewhat naive, and, and it cost him dearly. So you don't necessarily have to have a divine connection to play a lawful good character, but I think you do need to play them that they are going to make the choices that aren't always easy, they're, they're probably going to pick the hardest path almost every time, which that can still be kind of fun as long as you're not always pushing your beliefs and your code of ethics on other people. And I know we mentioned this before that at some point it can even become kind of funny. Like depending on the game that you're telling, if it's a super serious game, it wouldn't work. But you could have a situation where every time something shady needs to happen, then it's fun to figure out, well, how do we get the paladin somewhere else? You know, do we tell him that there's an orphanage on fire across town and he always runs over there, so while we go in and backstab the merchant and steal all the stuff, and he comes back like, ah, shop's closed, I don't know, it's weird, let's go. And the player knows what's happening, but they're they're in on it, and it just becomes a fun part of the game on how we do this every time so that the other characters aren't bound by that, that code of ethics. But that, again, that will probably get old at some point unless eventually it screws up and the paladin comes back in the middle and then, then that can be some interesting role play but it will probably end up with someone rolling a new character. So again, I, I know as, as I said earlier, caveat, I don't know that we have a good answer to this so the, the short answer for me is that you need to have an understanding that you are not the party leader unless you're playing in a group that does that and that there are going to be times where your code of ethics doesn't force other people to do what you want them to do or how you should play. If you're playing that type of paladin, 
you probably need to play like a solo game, maybe have a DM that will run for, for you on the side. I just don't think it's a good fit for an overall party. But I don't I, know. It's, it is a character class. It's available. So, you know, the game designers assume that at some point a paladin will play in a group with other people. I, I think what's important to remember here is we're getting together to play a game. We want to hang out with each other, and we want to have fun. And if the way you want to play your character is negatively impacting the fun level of the table, you really do need to say, okay, I need to tone down a little bit so that we can all have a good time. Of course, on the flip side of that, playing the paladin to be that leader, that definitive order giver, everyone has to do what I say, has its place in certain stories and certain games. But you just need to have the right type of person running the game and the right type of players participating. I mean, I, I remember an old game that we played where uh, we had to aggressively ask someone some questions and the paladin wouldn't stand for it, but he knew it had to be done, so he just walked out of the room. And if and when the person we were interrogating fell below zero hit points... He would walk back in, heal him to one hit point, and walk away again. And it was one of those things where both the player and the character were that kind of begrudging old man. And it was, well, this has to be done, but I don't want to see it. I don't want to participate, so I'm going to go stand in the corner. To jump in there, and this is something where I think the DM has a lot of power to make that go one way or the other. Because as a very strict DM, I could say, well, you know he's being tortured. I'm sorry, enhanced enhanced interrogation techniques. So you cannot allow that as a paladin. If you continue to allow that, then you're going to lose your paladinhood. That, you know, that, I could see a DM saying that and that causing that player to go, okay, well, then I can't participate. My first thought as a DM would be, okay, the paladin says they're going to walk out of the room. Okay, great. I'm going to have that paladin see something on the street that they then need to get involved with, and through getting involved, they're actually going to find out the same information that the guys who are torturing get and go, see, you followed your God's way, and you got the answer you needed. So your God will provide for you as well, so you can follow your beliefs and still have success. And that's a way that the people who feel like they need to do the you know enhanced interrogation techniques, that could still work. I probably will do the roles or whatever, decide if it works. But then I'll have the paladin have a way to get the same information by doing their thing so that I'm not saying one is better than the other in any way. Right. That's a really good way to do it. Two quick little things I want to point out here. One, any class can be lawful. I know that there are restrictions in most of the books, like a barbarian has to be chaotic or whatnot. But in the big picture, any class can be played lawfully. In this context, lawful meaning you stick to a set of guidelines whether it is an oath to a deity, an oath to a set of principles, an oath to an internal mantra, monastic studies, you can have a lawful rogue. You can have someone who is skilled and able to backstab and be super charismatic still be lawful. I mean, there are, if we go back to 3.5, there are uh, prestige classes that basically slap a rogue into a interrogator type of, or investigator type of role. So they're, they're still a rogue, but they're following those laid out guidelines. So just because, and 
the best example is the the diametric opposition between a paladin and a rogue. You know, just because the rogue wants to be sneaky and maybe has to stab someone in the back doesn't mean they can't be following lawful practices. It's just different ways of living out or following that law. I think it comes down again to the DM and their their adherence to whatever guidelines they want. And for example, you could be in a very corrupt city where the government has a quote unquote understanding with the Thieves Guild that says you will steal from these people, you will not steal from these people, you will not kill anybody if you steal anything. If you steal something, you have to give the owner first chance to buy it back from you at 70% of its value before you sell it. You, know, you could come up with all these regulations that make stealing sort of a commerce, and then you could play a lawful rogue. He goes, well, you know, I steal, but I steal based on the guidelines that my government has set up, so I'm, you know, I'm a lawful citizen. Yeah. You could absolutely do that and still have someone that follows the law. I know some common examples are what if you're in a tyrannical government, but you're a paladin. So you're following the laws of your city, but those cities are, or those laws are unjust. I've played in a game where we let that happen, and you say, okay, well, I, you know, I, I live in a city that's a dictatorship, so I, I'm a lawful paladin who follows the laws. But read, go back and rereading the first and second edition, it, it does talk about truth and beauty and life being more precious than anything else. So I'm not sure that that really would slide any longer in my mind that as a, as a paladin, you would say, well, these laws are, they are the law, but they're not just. They unfairly support one over the other. But again, the DM could say, no, I'll, I'm okay. I'll let you keep your paladinhood as long as you follow the laws of the city that you're in and, you know, and go with it. So I think the DM has a lot of control of what will and what won't work and how strictly they adhere to those principles will probably make the, the opposition of one character and the other get more direct or a little bit more gray-wiggly. And that's actually a really good quasi-segue. One of the comments we got about this was asking why people are, are fascinated with or interested with playing what is titled the anti-paladin. It has some precedence in the books. You know, someone who gives up their paladin hood might become an anti-paladin. In various 3-5 supplements, there were alternate class features that were, end quote, anti-paladin, whether it was evil or whether they were sworn to another alignment. Um, there's even some prestige classes that when you if you willingly or accidentally violate your Paladin Code of Ethics and lose your powers, you can take these prestige class levels to gain a semblance or a version of those powers back. And what's really interesting here is, I think, why people want to do this. I think part of it is they want to see that good guy fall, and they want to see what happens to him after the fact. But I think another part of it is more a little bit real world. They like the mechanics of what you can do with a Paladin, they just don't want to follow the rules of the guidelines. And in that sense, um, that's why a paladin, in your example of a tyranny or a dictatorship, you're a paladin of that rule system. You might, not, you might no longer be able to call yourself a paladin according to the description of the upholder of truth and justice in the American way, but you still are someone who is the physical melee frontline fighter embodiment of the rule. I may be mis misspeaking, but I think that in 4th edition they did remove the regulation that you had to be lawful good, that you could be a paladin of any alignment. 
which in a way kind of makes sense. I mean, I think the term paladin is associated with like knights of chivalry and the knights of the round, and that's probably where the confusion comes in. But the idea of the paladin in the books and in the game is that you are the holy warrior of your god. So any god should have the ability to have a paladin for them, whether it be a nature god, a druidic god, an evil god. And I think for me, what what I would see, like I know the anti-paladin, or I think in De- next they call it a black guard, which is a chaotic evil paladin. For me, I think they make better NPCs. They make good opposition because that, that gives you the ability, much like a Darth Vader, do you redeem them and beat them or do you kill them? Because then you have some options for both and for some role play. But as far as a character that's actually playing a, a black guard or a fallen paladin, I would like to think of them as being cursed. They still want to do good, but their powers are along the evil axis, so they don't cure wounds with their hands, they, they cause wounds. So then they have to use that, that ability to, to fight evil by laying on hands, which obviously puts them in danger because they're having to touch someone who wants to kill them. They don't have access to healing spells, so do they use those spells offensively in battle, which again is more of an evil thing. So I could see a, a character playing a cursed paladin trying to redeem themselves. I don't know that I could see them playing a cursed paladin or an anti-paladin unless you're playing just a strictly evil game and you know everyone's evil. That one just happens to be the paladin of evil. Then that would work. I don't know that it would work otherwise. Yeah, I really do like that idea of a, a curse impacting a good heroic character and role-playing out to deal with that and how to live with that fallout. I don't remember a lot from 4th edition. I think 4th edition had a lot less to do with alignment than 3.5 and previous did. But, as you said, it really did put emphasis on a paladin as a holy hero. This is something we talked about before the show, and something I wanted to bring up now that we're recording. If you're playing a paladin, you need to commit to the concept that you work for a divine being. In this context of this pretend world, this divine being has told you, you are my warrior, this is good, this is evil, kill evil, and do good. You have to commit to that fully. You have to jump into that aspect of being a paladin. If you want to play a paladin, but don't want to follow a deity... Well, there's lots of ways you can mess around with that, whether it's an alternate class or it's some more interesting um, role-playing aspect. But you need to, in my mind, you need to commit to that kind of philosophical foundation. And someone, um, there might have been one or two comments on, uh, on Facebook or Reddit about this saying, you know, hey, if, if, a, paladin, if a paladin is supposed to be so good why is he going around killing everything? Why is he not capturing people and taking them to a jury or imprisoning them? Why is he causing as much destruction as the super chaotic barbarian or rogue? Well, the answer is because your god told you to do it. And I think that really, that that's the diving board to get to lawful stupid. That's <laughs> that's the, 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 the shallow end of that pool. It's very easy when you are role-playing, to say, well, my god told me to do it, let's kill everything. It's, it's cheap. And I think that might be where that negative perception came from. But I, on the flip side of that, if you are really pushing yourself to be a good role-player, you can still take that devotion 
remove the mindless aspect of it and really flesh out your character. I mean, give them, have them show remorse. You know, yeah, they have to kill a bunch of evil goblins, but do they just say, yep, they're dead, let me walk away and kick the the blood off my sword and dust off my boots and keep going? Or do they show sorrow? I mean, a, a good paladin who has to kill a bunch of things, it would be great role-playing if he kept track of, of these people and somehow it impacted him, if it haunted him, because he was chosen for this destiny, but he doesn't necessarily want to kill everything. Oh, I can, I mean, just you saying that sparked in my mind an idea that, that maybe there's a prophecy that at the end of the world, the gods will fight for supremacy and they will use the souls of the fallen as their armies. So if he kills an evil creature before it has a chance to redeem itself, he's adding to the army on the other side. So mm. he always would prefer to redeem and to proselytize and try to convert. And killing is a last resort because, he, yeah, it's short term, it's best. But long term, he's adding to the opposition. And that could be some interesting conflict. Um, you know, and I agree. I think I think you're you're dead on the lawful stupid comment, and then you kill everything. And I think it was Stringmaster ninety four, if I'm reading that right, is the one who even said that. And I think even a couple of people on the Facebook said the same thing that that John Fowler and Andrew Young most say that. You know, you don't really play good guys when you're playing paladins because you're killing everything. So then again, it goes back to the DM. When someone says, I want to be a paladin, you need to have that conversation with them and say, okay, well, in this world, there are quite a few fallen paladins because they became overzealous. They, they became like Judge Dredd. They were the law, and their god revoked their abilities. So if you're going to play a paladin, you have to understand that that doesn't give you free reign to kill everything that you think is evil. Your god will hold you to his or her tenets or its tenets, and one of them is justice, which means that criminals must be brought before a judge if at all possible. Maybe one is mercy and before you fight anything you always have to delay that first round and give them an opportunity to surrender. And then if they attack you first then you may kill them because they have shown that there's no other way. And that, that adds some depth to it and not just like you said well I'm going to kill everything because it's quote unquote evil and I detect evil and therefore blah. And, but see, and you can even put another level of that conflict in there. What if in your world you had that deity that adhere to justice and morality and mercy, right? Like you just said. What if you have another deity that just commands its its paladins to slay evil without mercy? Those two paladins coming into conflict would be a really awesome role-playing session. Whether they were both actual players at your table or whether one of them was an NPC, you can you can really delve into the morality and philosophy behind well, my God says this, and my God says that. What does that mean? Do we have to kill each other? Can we figure out how to get along? You've got a lot of levels of role-playing there. I, I think the, the answer we can come to is while we don't have a definitive answer to any of these questions, as long as the player understands the reasons for his choice and can stick to motives and deal with consequences, and the GM can lay out the right scenario for that to take place, it's going to work out. I think that's the bottom line. No, I, I completely agree. I think the, the DM really has to set the tone, and if it's going to work or not, it's up to them. And I know, again, we've said this before, that uh, you know people being a dick at the table and using their alignment as justification, this is probably the end-all, be-all version of that. And I think the, the person who plays that character just has to understand that 
they have a obligation to the group not to do that, or they need to have those conversations in that first character creation setting, saying, "Hey, I'm going to be a paladin. You know, does anybody not want me to, or, or, or can we figure out a way to make this work right off the bat so that it does work together?" Um, one of the last things I wanted to touch on that uh, Downstrike uh, posted on Reddit about uh, some odd concepts for good guys, and he gave the example of like a forensic necromantic Da Vinci cleric. It's funny because I actually think that's very much what Rob is playing in the, the uh, New World games that are coming out right now from our yeah. campaign session. So he's like, uh, he actually has his background points because we're using 13th Age version backgrounds. And like, he was a, a mortician and he was also like a first responder. So he has all this knowledge about wounds and death and, and all that kind of crazy stuff. But when he casts spells, they're necromantic spells. So he's casting cause wounds rather than cure wounds. He's casting raise dead and having zombies raise off the battlefield and fight for him. We also have a paladin in the party, and it's causing some problems. And uh, you know, and as much as we were explicit that Rob's character is not evil, he is a good person. Nico is playing his paladin in the way that that necromancy is evil, regardless. You know, it, it, Rob. If if Rob's not evil, then he's misguided. And he's being manipulated, and he's doing evil without knowing it. So he still has a lot of direct conflict. And I can I, I completely understand the way Nico's coming at his character. But as the DM, I would have preferred that he had found a way to make it work. It kind of resolved itself not too long after the, the episodes that are coming out here. But it definitely caused some conflict that if I had to do that again, I would take my own advice, and I would say at, at the beginning, okay, we have a paladin in the party, we have a necromancer in the party, is this going to work or not? Because if not, then we probably need to have someone change their class or, or do some other things. But I do like the idea of that playing uh, those odd concepts that, again, like a cursed paladin. I actually am very excited about the possibility of maybe playing, maybe playing that in the near future because that, that sounds like an awesome idea. So I definitely think you can do that. But, again, it comes down to that first session with the DM talking to the player saying, are you guys going to be okay or are you guys just going to kill this guy in his sleep and he has to the character? I'm with you. Yeah. Uh, I think there is... On the one hand, uh, it's fun to an extent to throw people together and deal with the party dynamic as it evolves, but if you really want to enjoy the game and enjoy your time together and have this be a social event, which I think is how we're kind of all developing as players, you know, we don't have a lot of time to sit down with our friends, and when we do, we want to really enjoy the game, just take a second and make sure it's going to work out. Well, yeah, That's absolutely. Right I think that uh, you know, it is a game. We have limited time, at least you know most of us. I mean, there are people out there that that's all they do, and God love them. But more I can't do that. I, more about I can't do that. So if I if I wanted to have a board game night, for example, and like, hey, everybody come over and bring your favorite board game, and when they showed up, we tried to play them all at the same time. So one person's playing Legendary, one place is, person's playing Firefly, one person's playing Monopoly. I don't know who thinks Monopoly is their favorite game, but anyway, it's not going to work. We could probably figure it out in some weird way, and but it's not going to be as fun as if we say, okay, let's all play Firefly tonight. Let's all play Risk tonight. Let's all play Sentinels of the Multiverse tonight. And that's exactly the thing. We are playing a game. And and even as a very story-focused DM like I try to be, you know, and I, I want my stories to have depth to them and weight like a fantasy novel, I'm still playing a game, and I can't let that the idea of a great story get in the way of people having fun at the table. And I, I think if, as long as you kind of keep that in mind, then your games will be better overall. Exactly. You're exactly right there. Now, I, I think we're pretty good on that aspect of things. I agree. Um, so let's take something you mentioned in a throwaway a minute ago, 
and use that to transition over. Okay. Judge Dredd is a great example of someone who is lawful good to an extreme, and I think that is a great example of a situation that you can play upon or draw from if you want to run a game that is set in a uh, a cop-type world or a lawful police-type situation of your game. And that's where we want to go next, right? Yes, and I think that transitions actually very well with what Downstrike had said. You know, the forensic necromancy cleric, that's, that could be an investigator that, you know, if you're playing a group of investigators or like a procedural game, you know, mystery murder of the week type thing where people, one person plays a, a cop, one person plays uh, the informant rogue, and one person plays, you know, this guy, almost like a Sherlock Holmes type of detective where your game revolves around solving crimes in a city. Again, I think Eberron as a setting makes a lot of sense there. Sharn is the city, which you could make any fantasy version of that you want. It's essentially like New York City and Fantasyland where you could have this huge sprawling city. There's obviously going to be crimes all the time, whether it be someone whose who husband, who's husband went missing and it's a mystery, or it could just be a murder, you know, or again, I guess that's still a mystery, who did it type of a thing. Uh, but yeah, I think I think Judge Dredd is a great example. And, and to, to, to step back a little bit, I watched the new version of Judge Dredd not too long ago with Keith Urban, and uh, there was that moment where he's getting ready to walk into the big apartment complex, and there's the homeless guy sitting there, and, you know, his little... Rectacle comes up and says he's violating the law because he's loitering or whatever. And based on Judge Dredd, he could have judged him then. But he said, don't be here when I come back. So even though he was a lawful good paladin, quote-unquote, he still did not enforce those laws unilaterally. He still had a sense of humor about it and said, you know, this is a, I'm on a more important mission, so I'm not going to, to get on this guy. But if he's still here, then I will because I'm a lawful good paladin. Uh, and I think that that's a kind of a good example of how you can play a lawful good paladin without always having to be a lawful good paladin, if that makes sense. But yes, yeah, so sure. to jump forward, and we went long on the other two, so I think this one will have to kind of cut out a little bit. I have done this once before, so I'll cover my example first, uh, and then I'll let you kind of fill in where you want. Okay. Where, um, as again, I said, I'm a fan of Eberron. I really like that setting a lot. And there is, the way Eberron works, for those that don't know, there, there are 12 um, dragon-marked houses and these are people that have been given special markings that are called dragon marks. They're almost like, sort of like magical tattoos. And each one of these tattoos grants their owner some sort of ability or power, and they can become more powerful over time. And this sort of slight advancement over other people led to the development of these almost like mafia-style uh, monopolies. So that the person who's really good at finding stuff compared to someone else sort of did a better job at finding stuff, so they got more money, so they got bigger, and, you know, over hundreds and thousands of years, these dragon mark houses become very, very powerful. Well, one of them is uh, House Deneth, and they are essentially like U.S. Marshals for the world of Eberron. They have universal law enforcement powers. They are able to cross borders into other countries in the pursuit of criminals, and they have jurisdictional powers in all of them, just, again, like a U.S. Marshal does for the United States. So what we did in one of our attempts at doing a rotating DM game is all of us created a... We kind of had to play with Eberron a little bit because it doesn't exactly work, so we twisted it. So basically everyone created what we called a deputy U.S. Marshal, which, uh, which most Marshals are, so that way we could play different races and different classes. And we essentially were U.S. Marshals, and we would... It was like a villain of the week. There was, you know, this guy jumped bail, so we would chase him. Next game, someone else would DM, but it would be a different, 
you know, different uh, bad guy. And um, it was actually really, I thought, really interesting uh, because the first time, the first guy that went, we did sort of a, he, he, he took it in a different direction than what I was expecting, which I thought was really good, is the very first mission we played on was a transport of a whole bunch of prisoners by train, because in Everon you have lightning rails, which are essentially trains, back to Sentinel Tower, which is where Hal Stanith uh, is like held up, and the train was attacked and a whole bunch of prisoners were freed. And that wasn't exactly my original concept, but then it was like a 13 Ghosts of Scooby-Doo thing where we were just trying to track down the people who got free on our watch. So it still was the same concept. It was just a little bit of a twist. For me, I really liked that game. We played it for, for several sessions. Different people got to DM, so we got to see different DM styles. I got to play, which is always a plus. But I thought it was just an interesting way to play a cop type of game that allowed us to do multiple types of adventures. It, it wasn't just a in-the-city villain of the week. I mean, you could have... You could go to jungles for someone who got away. You could have an orc barbarian prince who was, uh, you know, who was captured, and he goes back to his homeland. And there was just you could basically play any type of D and D game you would want, but it was still within this overarching concept of you are U.S. marshals in this fantasy world. Go fix things. So, have you had any experience with playing like a group of cops, investigators, good guys type of thing? No, I have not myself played any campaigns that were that style. But I would really like to. I think inherently uh, this type of concept lends itself more to the mission-based gameplay, you know, which might be better for kind of this more modern gaming that we're in when we don't have time to sit down for a huge, long-running campaign session. Whether you do a rotating DM, whether you just play once every other week or once a month, if you know you're a cop and you know you've got to track somebody down you can kind of just sit down and jump into that role without much problem. And if you need to roll up a new character, if someone has to not be there a week, if someone new jumps in a week, it's just a different cop. <laughs> it's just a different investigator. Oh, this guy's out on a mission, so he's not here. You don't have to kill your story by losing or adding a person. But I think as a GM, there, are, there is still a really big opportunity to weave an overlying story through all of this. And you can have a lot more smaller stories that build on a person or a character and their interpersonal relationships, their backstory. You can really plant the seeds for a longer story with these criminals. What are they doing? Are they drug lords? Are they slave dealers? You know, Are they working for someone bigger? There's so many elements. So while it might be a smaller mission game where it's one session night and we're done and we can move on, you can still have those threads running to a larger world. In this game, which is what we've often done is when we do the rotating DM structure, is I, I set the overarching plot, and, um, and, and there was an overarching plot. Because we had to change the way House Denneth works for this game to actually exist, because in House Denneth you have to be human, I think, uh, so we changed it so you could be any class in any race. So what we said is there was this famous Sentinel Marshal who was like the, the true marshals in the U.S. Marshals. He developed the program that we were all in, so we were all hand-selected by him to participate. And then right when we started the game, he's gone mission, missing. That he uh, One of the things that I wrote is that every year the Sentinel Marshals have to go out on one job. They, have to, they, have, they actually have to get one case they have to close just as a formality, and he went missing during his. 
So there was a sort of this mystery that they were trying to solve is where did he go? Is he just still undercover? Was he murdered? And there was some corruption within the Sentinel Tower that other marshals that, that wanted to take his spot before he was declared dead, that kind of thing. We didn't get into it enough for real, to really unravel that mystery, but you're exactly right. Even though we were playing a Monster of the Week, Villain of the Week type of game, which is great for a rotating GM structure, there was still an overarching plot that would have came out over time. Yeah, that's the way to do it. I really want to play a game like that. And I think that would be a perfect setting for that Cursed Paladin. <laughs> I like that a lot, actually. Yeah. So, again, I don't know. There's probably a lot more we could talk about in depth, but I, I, I think playing good guys, whether it be a bunch of detectives, a bunch of soldiers, a bunch of mercenaries, or in that case, those House Deneth. And, again, if you don't play an Eberron, you could do the same thing. You can make your own fantasy world up and say, hey, in this world, there's a group that's like the U.S. Marshals, and they can go anywhere and, and fight crime, and that's what, who we're going to be. And you yeah. could do that without having to, to do any of the other trappings of Eberron. I think it's a great thing, and I think what you said... I think it makes a lot more sense if you want to do a rotating structure because then you can do your Monster of the Week, Villain of the Week. So if you thought about trying a rotating DM structure, maybe that's what you start with. Yeah. I, I would be cautious of the Sherlock Holmes type of detective because, again, that's more of your lone, you know, Wolverine situation where you have uh, the loner. I don't know that you could have a whole group of Sherlock Holmes and not, and not kind of break down because I think that's more of a single-player type of game. I'm sure it could work in a way, but I don't think it lends itself to playing in a group dynamic. No, but you could certainly have uh, his support team be everyone that's being played. I mean, you could even have the Sherlock Holmes quote-unquote character be an NPC, and you could all play his partner. You mean the John Watson, the Inspector Lestrade, the Urchin Brigade that he has, various other cops... So there would be a way to do it. You're right. It's not ideal, though. Not everyone can be Sherlock Holmes, although in the current BBC series, pretty much everyone is because everyone seems to have his special power, so whatever. <laughs> no, but actually, I, I really like that, actually, the idea of him being an NPC and all the other characters working with him. And, and so he's almost like, he's almost like a, a, a disembodied voice where Sherlock Holmes says, I need you to research this, and, and so you don't necessarily always interact with him and then, of course, at some point in time, Sherlock Holmes would go missing, and you would have to solve the mystery without his help and save the day. So exactly. for like, so, so more of a short-run anthology series of, of games, like, hey, we're going to play for 13 sessions, and at the end, Sherlock Holmes will either be dead or you will have found him. That would be cool. I don't know if it would make a great ongoing, we go until we get everybody killed or get bored of it story. That's definitely a fun idea. That's another good one uh, for the books there. And plus, you, then you don't have to deal with how the actual player, who is the Sherlock Holmes, just knows everything without even trying. Because yep. there's no way you can roll that. I don't care what game system you're using, you just can't roll to know everything. It defeats the purpose. It does. Um, I, I think the closest that I've come is similar to what you were playing, uh, or you play with uh, your character in our Fae game, where you knew he would do that. So you sort of retroactively say, well, I knew he would do that after it was already done. And, and that would be something that you could probably get away with, almost like maybe like an initiative type thing as well. Uh, you know, like the, there's the uh, Robert Downey Jr. version of Sherlock Holmes where he knows what you're going to do in combat, so he's able to plan for it and react to it. Is it some sort of like initiative boost so that he always gets a counterattack, something like that? But you're right. right I, don't, I don't think, again, that's why John Watson exists, because Sherlock Holmes is a terrible main character. So you made right. John Watson the main character, so you keep the mystery of what's going on, but you get to have the involvement 
So, I, okay. yeah, I, I, agree. I don't think it makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Um, so I think we'll wrap this up there. I do want to give a, just a quick shout-out to everybody uh, on Reddit. We had, a, again, we didn't have necessarily as many comments as we've got before, but we certainly got more passionate comments. Uh, Stringmaster94, Downstrike, Spotted Kitty, and Famous Ninja, and Baron Mind all sent us in comments or questions or sort of some insight into their experiences. And then on the Facebook page, as I've already mentioned, Nico... And some of these overlap, so like one of the questions Nico asked, we've already kind of answered from the other side, but Nico sent us in some questions, John Fowler and Andrew Young all played along and sent us in some information, so I really appreciate that. And then we also do have one synergy, I think uh, it was um, Andrew again, who also goes as that one GM, sent us in his idea for our synergy that we're going to do, maybe not the next Dungeon Talk, but within the next one or two, we're going to get back to that. So there's still time if you would like to play along. Check out the website, check out Reddit where it's posted, figure out what cards we're using, and send us in your ideas. You can give us feedback and comments at our website, dndacademy.com. You can check out previous podcasts at our website and subscribe to future ones on iTunes. If you have a suggestion for a topic, we'd love to hear it. Email your ideas to podcast at dndacademy.com, and you can connect with us on Twitter at dnd underscore academy. As always, thanks for listening, and remember, if you're having fun, you're doing it right.